to the Check Shoot Podcast. Very excited today because I have my first author uh, on the show. Technically, uh, Rudy Sarzo, uh, who worked with Ozzy Osbourne, Quiet Right, all those guys. He wrote a book about his time with Ozzy Osbourne. So I guess technically she's the second author uh, that I've had on my show. But uh, Crystal Waltman, she wrote a book. It's called Quitting to Win. It was just released. Uh, and when I found her and I saw the book title, I thought... Uh, you know, maybe it was about quitting your job to win because I did that. And I was like, oh, what a great idea. Quitting your job to win at life. Well, that's what I want to do. Um, but then I realized, uh, no, it's actually about quitting drugs and alcohol, which um, may also be a good thing. It's a, a probably more, definitely a more uh, powerful life change that you can make. Um, so she talks about this in the book. Um, and as you probably know, if you listen to my show, a lot of my guests have struggled with this issue uh, from comedian Craig Gass Singer Donnie V, uh, I think Brian Forsyth from Kicks had some issues with drugs too that he had to cut out. Uh, Sarah Jean from iHeartRadio talked about this on our interview. Um, they all had great stories to tell. And of course, Crystal's story is uh, great as well. It's no different. And it, she talks even more about this stuff in the book. The book involves drugs, alcohol, gangs, uh, major league ball players, uh, steroids, suicide, homicide. I mean, there's all this crazy stuff in the book and was, she's able to rise above all this and um, come out on top despite all this crazy stuff. Now she's, you know, she's written a book. She's teaching classes on yoga and diet and how to deal with back pain, which is another issue that she talks about in the book and on her interview. Um, so check out her book, quitting to win. Um, you can find it on Amazon and I hope you enjoyed this interview. Um, she was a great guest. Okay, well, welcome, Crystal Waltman. I said that right? It's yes. not too hard to pronounce, right? Thanks, Chuck. Yeah, good, good to have you here in person. This is exciting. We got the COVID safety shield. I don't know if this does anything, but I'm just taking all the precautions. And we're socially distanced, right? So Yes, we are. It's nice to be in studio. I haven't been in for a while since COVID, so yeah, great setup here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I guess let's talk about, I'm just going to dive right into the with the hard questions, the uh, Hard-hitting stuff. Uh, you, I read your book. It's a great book. Out the, uh, it's out right now. Quitting to Win is the title. Thank you. And, um, but let's start. I, I like to go chronologically a lot of times. So we'll start back at the beginning. Um, so this is, this is and again, this is a, maybe a f- tough first question, but your parents divorced when you were three. Now, you probably don't remember that because you're three years old. Um, but, you know, talk about having your parents divorced through your childhood, like how that affected you. Because I think that people often underestimate the effect that that has on kids. So I kind of want to get your take on that because you're someone who actually went through it. Sure. So growing up, um, you know, my mom was the the primary parent and she was a great mom. And as we were little and then, you know, going to high school, I found softball as my family. Like I found team and, you know, sport as my family. And I started playing at a very young age and I just like, that's where I belonged. Those are the people I want to be with. I would do anything to be on a field. All I wanted to do was play. And it was, you know, in the nineties in Arizona is when cocaine was coming over the border Mm. and there was also fueled by gangs. So people in my neighborhood either went towards sports or towards gangs. Mm. So not everybody made it out. Some people went to jail very few of us from my high school went to college, much less scholarshiped. Um, so early on, I found that, you know, playing sports kept me out of trouble, kept me hmm. off the streets. Did your, um, so your mom raised you, was your dad in your life at all? Did you see him or? He was absent until I was about 18. Oh. And then he also came back again 
when my daughter was born. Oh. So we have a great relationship now and it's like he's making up for with my daughter for the time that he wasn't there with me. Oh, okay. So yeah, you you said like you said so- softball was a big thing. Um so you started that at age 10. Um, was there other sports that you tried or what was it about softball that you liked so much? Yeah, maybe just that I was tall and I could catch. Oh, I mean, okay. they stuck me on first base oh. from T-ball all the way up. And I, because I could catch, I was just there and I was taller than my counterparts. And there was even times when we'd be playing and the other parents would stop the game and protest my age <laughs> and say, prove that she is in the right age but you were. I was, okay. yes. Yeah, but I was just taller okay. and matured earlier than, than most girls. Okay. Yeah, because so, I always was wondering about that when there's a kid that gets held back, but they're like 16 playing in like a, you know, 13-year-old's league or something. Yeah, yeah. and the parents get pretty serious. I yeah. mean, they're... Do you have to like show your like library birth- card or something? Because you don't have a driver's license at that point, right? My mom used to carry around my birth certificate, oh. yeah. Really? But they would wow. stop the game and say, she's not allowed on this team, you know, because I could hit it. Yeah. Over well, the fence awesome. or yeah, further at that time. Yeah. So that that was a big part of your life, and we'll get to more of that too. But also another big thing that became a part of your life um, was you started drinking. You started drinking at age 14. Do you remember that first experience? Yeah, so just like you know, an athletic mentality of play hard, repetitive, I want to be the best, that also turned into a sport of drinking. So hmm. we would train hard, we'd play hard, and then after we won – then we would celebrate hard. So I, at 14, I was uh, made the varsity team in high school. And so I was placed with the 18-year-olds right away, the As 16, 17, 18-year-olds. Yeah. Wow. yeah, so I'm 14 in high school. And, you know, that came with a lot of social anxiety, even though I appeared to fit in from the outside because I was tall and I carried myself well, but I still had all this inner doubt and anxiety going on. So the freshman year, we won state. And I was part of that team and that group of older girls, and we would just celebrate, right? So then drinking became a sport, just like the sport of softball. And on the weekends, we'd celebrate together or after the games. And that was my first blackout. What did you drink at this point in drinking? Yeah. So I think it was like Mad Dog 2020. I don't know. There there were like red (laughs) solo cups floating around. It was like Biggie Smalls, Tupac. Uh, Snoop, you know, I can hear, yeah. I, I can remember just hearing that in the background. There was pot, cigarettes. So yeah. And you bought booze at an, uh, you were underage and you bought it at a liquor store where in your book, you talk about how the bloods and the crips hung out there at night. And so, but you said, as long as you did it before 10 PM, you were fake or sorry, you were safe. Um, but did you, so did you have a fake ID or was the guy that sold you the booze, does he know you're underage? Like, how did you, how did you do this? Yeah. So not that I want to encourage this. Yeah. Behavior. Yeah. I mean, times have changed so much, but there was like a border of two different high schools and where Mm -hmm. they met. And this was a convenience store, not a Circle K, but like a knockoff brand, Middle Eastern run. When, you know, when you walk in there, you can smell the old cardboard and just kind of the dust on the, on the packages of beer. And I would go in there at 16 and just place a very large order. I'd have cash. They'd smile at me. They'd give me extra little bottles and they'd say, see you next week. And so, no, I didn't even have a fake ID at that <laughs> wow. time. They were just willing to hand it out. And then, you know, you glance oh. down in the back and you see like a gun on the bottom shelf. Jeez. And yeah, bad stuff happened there at night. But that's so 
part of my side hustle at the very beginning was overcharging high school students for alcohol. You know, they would give me money. I would go buy it and then, you know, keep the margin or whatever. But I would walk into any store and never, never got turned down. Wow. Never got turned down. Interesting. So you also talk about how you dated a football player who was in a gang and you picked him because you thought he could like protect you basically. And and he did. Yeah. Cause early on I had a sexual assault incident and I could never, from that point on, I just wanted somebody to protect me. And so I kind of just partnered with him and he having a reputation of, you know, being around him was enough safety. Was he a big guy then I'm assuming? Yeah, he was a big guy. Okay. But then he ended up going to jail, right? Yeah. There was a night, um, I had gotten out of the stolen car just moments before this incident took place on a Friday night and there was an altercation and there were some gunshots and yeah, a group of kids ended up going to jail. They were all on the football team from oh, high school. Oh, a group of kids. So not just, yeah. n- not just, wow. I think there was four guys in the car and mm-hmm. they all went to jail. Somebody for pulling the trigger and the other ones for accessory. And- so you're already starting to see at a young age, some of the, these behaviors that, you know, dumb ki- things that kids do when they're young partying and gangs, all this stuff. Like it seems glamorous at the time, but you're already starting to see, oh, maybe this isn't so glamorous. Going to jail doesn't sound too fun. And that's, that's probably a long time in jail if you're stealing a car, I'm assuming. And murder. Yeah. Oh, there was a murder too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it went right over my head. Yeah. So, and then there was another friend that you had that you partied with Scarlett, your friend Scarlett, you talk about mm. this in the book and you guys did alcohol, drugs, you played baseball together. You played mailbox baseball. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? So, yeah. So mailbox baseball, we would get into a the back of a pickup truck and we would drive around a neighborhood and with the baseball bat, you know, hit the mailbox off of the mailbox. Isn't this from Days and Confused? Is that where you guys got the idea? I don't know. Did you ever see that movie? I don't think so. They did the same thing in there. Yeah. And then, so if you, you know, you hit it, you knocked it loose, you get a point. If you knocked it all the way off, then you, you know, got a home run. And then whoever did the, whoever didn't get the most points, then they would have to be the lawn jockey and we would drive down the neighborhood to somebody's front yard and pick up lawn ornaments, put them in the truck, drive down another block and set them up in somebody else's yard. Oh, wow. (laughs) This is totally random. Did you guys ever get caught for this or in trouble? No, we never got caught. Okay. So there was that. And then, um, so, but anyways, going back to your friend, Scarlett. So then there was a tragedy there. Why don't you tell us about what happened with Scarlett? Yeah, so Scarlett and I were together through high school and we played, trained hard for softball all the time. She had a batting cage in her backyard. Wow. And we would hit, you know, hit balls and we'd jump in the pool at night. I'd so slept. her parents pretty wealthy then? Or? No, just middle class, okay. but very, you know, her dad did very well for them for, for our neighborhood and the mom was around. She was a stay at home mom. So she was always there taking care of everything. And the house was always in order. And I just loved her family. I mean, her mom and dad, her sister, they just had such a great family unit. And they were all in and always had the same family values of what was important and playing sports and training and going to college and scholarship. And um, yeah, so we went to two different colleges. I went to Central Arizona. She went to ASU. And we were brought back together um, over Christmas break. And so we were getting together. We hadn't seen each other for for a while, first semester. And then we got back together at my mom's house in the backyard and 
it was December in Arizona, mm. like the cold, crisp night of, you know, the stars you can see, you could smell the mesquite in the air. And we were just laughing, talking about boys, roommates, coaches, you know, everything that had gone on with our team. And, you know, I had brought some cocaine back from college and because it was running through, um, whatever was just dropped off there. And I had brought some home with me. We were doing that. We were drinking and she left and we made plans for the next day to hang out and go for a drive. She went to her high school boyfriend's house and she told me she had to leave and go over there. And then the, I had went to bed and I got a call in the middle of the night, kind of staggered to the phone. Like who's calling? This is before cell phones, maybe pagers back then, but not sure. We, I, I had a pager at one point. <laughs> I, me too, yeah. <laughs> so I thought the, I was cool. White suburban kid with a pager. The, so phone, the phone rings and I stagger to the phone and it's her little sister and she just says, come over. And she dropped the phone. And so I put the phone down. I put my tennis mm. shoes on. And she lived down the street, around the corner, through the park pretty close, a couple blocks away. So I just start running. The sun's coming up. It's like the break of dawn, the cold air. And when I approach her house, the perfectly manicured lawn, it was surrounded by police cars. Her car was in the driveway and we had just left each other a few hours ago. Mm. So I approached the scene and they said, uh, you know, there's, there's been a homicide. They didn't know what had happened yet. And she was dead. And I kind of just went black from that point. And that really started my burying my feelings and just having this like internal rage all the time. Um, so it was pretty sad. So I lost my best friend um, early on. And but it wasn't a homicide, right? So they thought initially it was a homicide because they're like, why would she kill herself? That's insane. She had a great life. She had it all. Yeah, she was an um, athletic phenom. I mean, she was just everything you could think of when you thought of an athlete. She mm. trained hard. She set new records. She was team captain. She showed up all the time, on time, prepared. You know, everybody loved her. And by day, we were great athletes and by night, like the baseball, you know, mailbox baseball stuff. And we, you know, mm -hmm. we wreaked havoc at night and we both had like this little low level level of rage always mm. bubbling up inside us. Mm. And it was like, if we were doing well in school and sports, then we didn't, shouldn't have anything to complain about, you know? So we mm. didn't really know how to deal with our emotions mm -hmm. or that anything should be wrong. So her death ended up being ruled a suicide and it was just, it just stopped me in my tracks huh. for life. I didn't want to go back to school and play. I didn't want to play softball anymore. I just totally numb. I just, oh. I just went numb. So, and then I think, I think I was, had the timeline wrong on this because um, before that, I guess this is when you guys graduated, you were actually, uh, you were poised to graduate and honored for your grades. You had this scholarship, um, but you got drunk to celebrate graduation. You showed up drunk and they said, you can't walk. So you weren't allowed to walk at graduation, right? Yeah. So part of my high school legacy that I left behind, not only that of a female athlete scholarship 
And there was only two of us that went that year. One went for a volleyball and one, and I went for softball. Yeah. But it was rare that the girls went to college at all. And hmm. maybe they got pregnant or dropped out or just got married. Hmm. So I showed, so uh, it was high school graduation and five of us got together and rented a limo, this white stretch limo, you know, like 80 style picked, picked us up, <laughs> came to my house and we stopped by the next friend's house, picked them up and kind of took pictures all the way around at the family's gatherings. And we were drinking in the car on the way. So it was about an hour before we got to the venue. When I got to the venue, I was in like the green room, side room, putting on my cap and gown. And the athletic administrator uh, principal came over to me and she was like, I'm so proud of you. You know, you're going to get called up three times today for your GPA, for your scholarship, and then graduating with the class. And as she's pinning on my hat with the bobby pin, she starts, she, she can smell me. Mm. And she's like, have you been drinking? And I was like, well, yeah, we drank in the car on the way over. And she just took like a big step back and she's like, you can't walk. Yeah. And I was like, no problem. And it, it didn't even phase me because I was already in a different state of mind. Yeah. And when I drink, I turn into a different person. Huh. So off went the cap and gown, back to the limo with, other friends who, you know, weren't graduating, but Uh just older friends that were there supporting us. And one of my friends walked down the aisle and turned to my parents and said, Crystal can't walk. And they're like, well, what happened? Did she break her leg? (laughs) Like they, you know, nobody, nobody knew really what happened until the end of the night and the graduation was over. And, you know, they called my name three times at the ceremony and it was just like crickets. Weird. Where's Crystal? So... Was it around, was it before, um, around this time you, you were, you were 18. I don't know if it was before you graduated or after Scarlett's death, but you were, it was around this age that you started to experiment with, uh, pain pills as well. Right. Can you tell me about that? Cause I, I've heard so many horror stories. I never got into the pain pill thing. I mean, I took pain pills for, you know, my wisdom teeth surgeries, things like that, but I was, I never understood like why somebody would, you know, they didn't have that effect on me, but I think with other people, it's like they take it. It's like the best thing in the world for them. So and I just, I don't know, every, all the horror stories I've heard about the addiction with, I mean, it can turn someone's life around. So tell me about uh, your use with that. Cause this, you're someone that's actually used them. So you have, you can speak from experience. Yeah. So it didn't, it wasn't because of the way that it made me feel. It was just a way to get you through to the next game. So it started okay. around the age of 18 when I was in college playing ball. And, you know, after a weekend tournament, my roommate and I, We'd come back and sit in the dorm room on our couch and we would just sit in our inflammation. Our, our bodies were broken. You know, we had a couple spinal stuff going on, but the, the team that I played for, the culture of it was do what's best for the team, not, not what's best for the player. Mm. So those, the culture of some sporting organizations is now shifting a little bit to develop the players instead of just produce a winning program. Mm -hmm. So we played and no matter what, no matter how hurt we were, we just kept playing. Right. So we had our starting lineup. I started every game and even though I was hurt and in pain, you know, I would drink, I would drink the pain away after the games and hang out in the trainer's room. And that's where pills started for me Mm. was college athletics. So it was more to deal with the physical pain, but then did you get hooked Mm -hmm. on it? Like, is it more just like a, 
is it kind of a high or for emotional pain at all or yeah. And then it was just another form of numbing. Okay. I mean, I, I had used alcohol for many years mm-hmm. all the way through high school to numb. Now I was introduced um, to pain pills to numb. Mm-hmm. And, you but know, it was, still wasn't your go to drug of choice. Like I always had something running through my body, <laughs> a little bit of something all the time. Wow. I always like felt like I need to, to take the edge off. Yeah. So also while you were in college, um, you got pulled over by Scottsdale PD, which... <laughs> I'm sure, you know, you're not the only one to have this story because I've heard many people have these stories, Uh, but you guys were drunk and um, I don't think you got a DUI. You got an underage consumption ticket, right? Which is different, but you still had to uh, pay a fine and take alcohol classes, which now seems like, oh, that's not so bad because I feel like now I I think they throw you in tent city with the first offense and they put the uh, machine thing in your car where you got to blow, right? Yeah, it's changed a lot yeah, since back but then. That's when you when you started taking these alcohol classes, you first kind of started to maybe wonder about, hmm, maybe I drink more than normal people, right? Yeah, so I had court-ordered go to these classes, and um, it was sitting in these classes that I'm like sitting there listening, going, oh, okay, I black out, okay, this happens, that happens. You know, they have a list of these. They give you this pamphlet when you walk mm-hmm. in with these 12 questions, then this is like a test that you don't want to pass, right? Yeah. So you're looking and you, you're reading. <laughs> these, I like that. No. You're reading these questions. You're going, oh yes to that, yes to this one, yes to this one, and then you know you just sit there and listen to people talk, and you can relate. And you now, know, did you answer the questions honestly? Because I feel like uh, a lot of people would just go, no, that's that's not. They just deny, or they just they try to fake it to make themselves look like they don't have a problem. Or did you answer the questions honestly? Well, yeah, I answered them honestly, and it, but it was like, has alcohol ever, you know, kept you from doing something in your life? Like for my graduation, for oh, example, well, you, you know, that's, like it. Yeah, you can't lie about that. It yeah. had a thing, you know, yeah. and then I got in trouble this this particular night when I got pulled over. I was twenty. It was on my twentieth birthday, and there was. I was hanging out with donors of the university, which athletes did often, you know, because they were the ones that funded the athletes. And, Mm. you know, there was that whole under thing going on. And so I left them on Scottsdale Road. It was an old bar called Eli's. It was like right here around the corner, right right where Sprinkles is now. Is that the cupcake place? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. There used to be this old bar there. They and tear it down. They or? tore okay. it. They tore it all the way down. Yeah. Wow. So I was leaving on Scottsdale Road and um, got pulled over. The lights went on, and yeah, I just got underage consumption. But it was sitting in those classes that I realized that my drinking was different than others. But in my head and in my mind, I had this. It never crossed my mind that I could be alcoholic, because to me, an alcoholic looked like this. Mm-hmm. Whatever that was, right? It was a homeless uh, guy with the uh, paper bag and the and the covering the uh, bottle of booze. It was an unkept person mm-hmm. that you know, yes, the brown bag, you know, staggering down the street, or you know, and they explained in there that everybody reaches their own bottom, and everybody's bottom is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. So, going to classes could be somebody's bottom, or getting beat up, or beating up somebody, or going to jail. Or losing your house or losing your family or losing your rights to drive your kids. So they planted the seed for me and then it it clicked like, okay, well, my dad was alcoholic and that's why he wasn't around. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. So maybe I have that in me and they talked about how it's part of your DNA, you know, whether you can turn it on or off. 
So I could turn it off if I don't drink, right? Yeah. But when I drink, it, boom, okay. it, it turns on right away. But I was a real blackout drinker and I had group, I had a lot of blank spaces in my life. Yeah. And so this is interesting too. So after the graduation, after you got the DUI, um, it's interesting that the way your parents treated you, they didn't like yell at you or ream you for getting in trouble or, you know, they didn't get angry. They just gave you the silent treatment. They just kind of backed off. Right. Yeah. So my mom remarried when I was 10 to a great guy and I had a wonderful role model as a stepdad and he was the one that drove me to practices and we spent a lot of time together on the mm-hmm. field and whatnot. Um, but my mom's emotional intelligence of coping and dealing with feelings was just kind of like, if it's, if we don't talk about it, it's not happening. Mm. So as I turned in, huh. as I turned from a, a young girl into a teenager and was crossed with all these social, you know, these new social things. And like I said, it happened quick for me because at yeah. 14, I was running with the 18 year olds right away. So I was just, there wasn't like an ease into it in high school. Mm. Like some people go from freshmen, then yeah. they take on this to driving, to yeah. drinking, to smoking, like, boom, I just went all in right away. <laughs> and my mom didn't really, I don't think, I don't know that she had the tools. She grew up in a really small town. Um, outside of Phoenix called Wilcox. Oh. And so it's like, like I've heard of that. I've past heard Tucson. They're known for yeah. their apples. Yeah. Don't they have wineries there too or something? Yeah, it's the new wine place. Yeah. But my yeah. family settled in Wilcox a uh, few generations ago because uh, one of my, my great, great grandma had asthma. Oh. So back then people moved West. Okay. Whenever they had asthma problems. So they moved from Michigan to Arizona, settled in Wilcox and my mom made it up to Phoenix and started raising us and on life up here, but she didn't have the emotional tools. I think cause maybe she grew up in a small town and didn't really know what was happening and what was going on. Or we just didn't talk like other mom and daughters talked. Yeah. As long as I was performing, getting good grades and playing on the field, we didn't really talk about anything else. And yeah, you were doing good. You had good grades you were doing good. You guys won the national championship at uh, your freshman year of col- uh, at college so- yes. for softball. So central Arizona. Correct. You said. And then, but then you transferred to ASU. Now this, this is where things start to get even in more interesting. I mean, there's so much stuff in this book. This book is great. I loved it by the way. Um, but so you're working at a bar and you started dating a, a major league baseball player. That's pretty exciting. He was in town for spring training. Um, you said that he made you feel safe, like, you know, kind of like that other guy that, um, but it was also kind of a seasonal relationship. You knew that he had other girls, um, but you thought you would outlast them, right? Which is a mistake. I think a lot of young women make, and you felt like it was meant to be. And, um, you know, that you were going to beat out all these other girls. Um, so what would you tell young girls listening right now who might be in a similar relationship, like where they know they aren't the only one, but they think they can outlast the other person or that it's meant to be or, yeah, that's a tough one, Chuck. <laughs> I mean, it's funny that this has kept coming up, but um, I've never known any men to be monogamous. So the fact that somebody can be open with it or that you know, yeah, I think is easier on the psyche than women who think they're only they're the only one, and then once they find out, they go fucking crazy. Uh-huh. That hmm. shit crazy. Wow. So yeah, because I just uh, that's interesting. So. And you don't say who this uh, baseball player was, but you do say that you, I mean, he had a mansion. 
right? Oh, well, they rented mansions here in town while they were in town for spring training. Okay. Yeah, because it said in the book, you're like, yeah, you saw needles laying all over the mansion. So I'm assuming he was using steroids. I mean, unless he's a diabetic. Um, but you said they would like outlaw one drug that, and then the doctor would develop some sort of new yeah. steroid or something. And, um, but it, you said it wasn't just steroids. It was also booze, cocaine yeah. and tons of other drugs. Yeah. Right? And this is all you're at like 1920, right? Yeah. I was in college freshman, sophomore year. Yeah. And 19, then 20, 21. And then at age 20, you found out you were pregnant, um, which went on to, to be a stillborn, but, uh, the, and then, and then this ball player was you know, not part of your life anymore, but he went on to all you say, you don't say his name, but you do say that he went on to break records for an East coast team and testify about steroid use. So I have my guesses, but I won't, we don't, we don't say his name. So that's, that's a really interesting part of the book I thought. And then, um, I think it was around this time you ended up going to Vegas. I can't remember what the reasoning why, but this is where you met your now, I think this is your now husband, right? Michael? My now husband. Yeah. Yeah. At the Venetian. Cause he, but he was also from Arizona. Just happened that the two of you happened to be in there coincidentally in Vegas. Yeah. So the day, um, the week that I graduated college was December. So I graduated early and in between and uh, some of my uh, teammates and their parents were going to go to Vegas just to be on holiday break. And Mm -hmm. I was there and I was like, I told my mom, mom, I'm going to go Vegas, LA, New York. You know, I've just graduated. I'm ready to get out of here. And she goes, okay, honey, you go. We'll be here. We figured it out before others, you know, you'll be back. She's like, you go. So I was interviewing in Vegas um, for a hotel job. And my husband's client was a Venetian. And he, I was in a meeting and they were like, oh, you guys should meet. You're both from Arizona. You're both single. And so I met him the week that I graduated college. And Mm. he's been the rest of my life up until this point over 20 years later. Yeah. So fast, yeah. Fast forward, you two are married. Um, you're trying to have a baby. And then this is kind of when you decided, um, you're going to try to learn hot yoga so that you can be healthy and you're not going to drink. And you do this nine week course in Acapulco, Mexico, where no drinking is allowed. It's very rigorous. Um, but then after a few weeks, I mean, this is an amazing thing about people who are like really hell bent on drinking. You found drinking buddies and eventually, Mm -hmm. um, you kept you. Just, that didn't work, basically, right? Yeah. So I went away to Bikram Yoga College of India, and I don't know if you saw the E60 on Bikram. No, but that just recently came out in a whole Netflix special. But so okay. I get to this yoga college, and it was in Acapulco, Mexico. So I mean, that does sound like it's maybe not the best place for a place to not drink. Like that sounds like a party <laughs> town, is it not? Or I mean, we were at the Fairmont Princess. I lived there for nine weeks. And it was just magical. Mm. But so I go there. I, I couldn't get pregnant. I wasn't getting pregnant. It wasn't happening naturally. And I just thought, oh, I'm too toxic. You know, I just need to go clean out my body. And I had taken up yoga because of my back pain. And that was right. a way to, okay. you know, kind of band-aid the pain day by day. But I'd have to go like three times a week. And it didn't cure my, I didn't cure my back pain, but I was able to, you know, maintain life. So that's how I fell in love with yoga. And then I went to go clean out my body. So I get to yoga college in Acapulco, 300 people, seven different languages. We're all wearing, you know, barely nothing yoga clothes because we're in this room of 104 degrees and 60% humidity. You know, our mats are like six inches apart and we're all sweating on each other. You know, exactly what you would picture yoga college to be. 
So there's some corruption in the administration. And as soon as I start to see that, just like I saw in my college, just like I saw in other organizations that I was part of was, oh, they're doing their thing. They can't call me out of my drinking. Mm, okay. <laughs> so I got there. I saw what was happening. And I'm like, oh, they're not going to bother me. You know, so I just walked down the beach to the next hotel and drink there on a Saturday afternoon or whatever. Mm. And, you know, and found my people and kept on drinking. So I did go to, Yo- I mean, that was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't work for the, the trying to, the purpose was to try, part of it at least was to try to quit drinking. So that didn't work. That you did also tried work. like a spa in Palm Springs. Is there other things that you tried to <laughs> do to quit drinking? Or? Oh, Chuck, I've tried everything. I mean, you tried from, you know, switch from hard alcohol to wine, only, oh. <laughs> only drink on weekends. Don't start before, you know, four o'clock. You make up these rules. Like, yeah. you're like oh, I'm only going to do three. And then after All three, right. you're like, well, what's one more? And then, yeah. I, yeah. So yeah, I pretty much, um, the insanity in my head and the noise behind alcohol, yeah. it was never stopping. I was always like, when am I going to get my next drink? When can I quick, let me take care of business of life so then I can sit and relax and, you know, escape my mind. Yeah. So my life was very well put together because I just had that high achieving, like if I do this and all this looks good, then I can go do this and nobody's mm-hmm. going to care. Mm-hmm. Um, so where were we at yoga college? Yeah. Or so, when I came yeah, back. So no, again, you're still trying to drink. Yeah. Um, but then eventually, um, I mean, you did, I think you did quit drinking because then you had your daughter and you kind of gave it up for a while. Right. And then, um, Probably because of your daughter, I'm assuming. I mean, if you get pregnant, you don't, you didn't drink when you were pregnant or didn't drink a lot, I don't think so. But then eventually um, you're driving. And then I think for uh, for whatever reason you decide, I think you talk about this in the book about something, maybe you were at a ball game or something. You thought, oh, let's have a couple of beers. So then you kind of fell off the wagon and then you started drinking and and you you were drinking with your daughter in the car. And that's kind of where, where you said, this is not good. This is a bad thing. Yeah. So when I got pregnant, I was able to stop drinking just because I was so happy that I was pregnant. Couldn't believe I was pregnant now for the second time. Yeah. Right. First time right. around. That's true. Yeah. First time around, I had a stillborn. So now I get yeah. pregnant again and I'm just like hyper, like, okay, I got to do everything right because I uh, I'll blame myself on the stillborn because you think it was the drugs. He was on lots of drugs too. Yeah. And so was I. So I just don't think it made yeah. a good. You it know, might have been for the best that your body rejected it naturally. Right. And then so when I got pregnant, I was able to stop drinking. Then I had my daughter, was able to continue to stop drinking because I breastfed for over a year and a half, two years. And then when I decided to stop breastfeeding, it was March and back to spring training games and hanging out with my friend and picked up like 10 years ago. And my mm. drinking was never the same post-pregnancy. I never metabolized alcohol the same. Now it was even worse. Oh, like you got drunk quicker? Yes. Ooh. Well, you might have lost some of your tolerance too if you had quit for so long. Right. I'd taken two years off to have a baby. And then now, and being a drunk mom is not a good look. Drinking and driving with kids in the car is not a good look. I mean, if your kid gets hurt and you're in charge, even if you're at home, it's still child neglect and endangerment because- you're the adult on the scene and you're not present. Yeah. So this madness went on for a couple of years. Um, My daughter was in 
she wasn't in, in anything yet. Like there was no preschool or kindergarten mm-hmm. yet. Okay. We were just at home. So, sure. you know, it was nothing for me to push the jogging stroller <laughs> down the, you know, down the street and say hi to the neighbors and be drinking vodka lemonade out of my tumbler <laughs> in my activewear. This seems like a, this is a very common thing for a lot. I've heard this from a lot of different. I mean, obviously, I'm not a mom, but I've heard this from a lot of people that a lot of moms drink because it's just stressful or it's boring or I don't it's. Yeah, I don't tell me about. It. I don't. I don't know. I don't understand this. It's so, like fascinating to me, though. Yeah, it was so socially acceptable. Of like, oh, let's you know, oh, let's take the let's take the edge off. Oh, we you know we've been moms all day. It's three o'clock. We need to sit by the pool and. So you're and, drinking with other moms, not just by yourself, or yes, both, both, or both, okay, both, both. Huh. Um, yeah, it was very socially acceptable, and it just alcohol just slowly crept up on me. And be, made my life unmanageable. And to where it started getting into my head, like, okay, I'm going to stop. Every Monday I would say, like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. Mm. Or my husband would tell me something that I did or something that I said in a social event. And I wouldn't remember it because I was Ooh. in a blackout. Because after a certain amount of drinks, I would still function. Yeah. But I would not remember it. Okay. I don't know if you saw that movie, um, Girl on the Train. Emily, oh, Emily Blunt. No, I don't think so. Now I have to see that. So she I was, like her. she was in an alcoholic state mm-hmm. and her husband murdered somebody and she witnessed it, but he told her she didn't see it and she didn't oh. know. And so she was trying to recall this, what had happened because she thought she was in the scene of this. Yeah. And when I watched that movie, it, it, it really struck me like lightning because People were telling me what was happening mm-hmm. and you just have to kind of take them as like, oh, did that really happen? I don't know if that happened. You know, was I part of that? Like if you're part of something and you're in a blackout, does it count? Are you guilty? Yeah. You know, that state it's of consciousness. Scary. And so I was just like, I can't keep doing this. So mm-hmm. every Monday I'd be like, I'm not going to, I got to stop. I got to stop. And then Monday I'd stay in bed and be like self-loathing and, you know, just so sad. And then Tuesday I'd start to feel better and I'd open up the blinds. Meanwhile, my husband's going to work every day, just like normal. No problem. He'd be like, are you okay? Do you need anything? Mm. You know, I had to help with my daughter so I could just stay in bed and be sad for myself. And then Wednesday would come around. I'd take a shower. Thursday I'd get ready and put my makeup on. And I was in that vicious cycle again. Mm. And I just thought I was a more fun as a mom hmm. drinking because I would get on the floor, play with the kids, you know, go to the park. And I just like to go to the park and, you know, what used to be like sitting out in the sun with your girlfriends at a hotel pool now was taking your kids to the park, drinking out of your tumbler. Hmm. And it, I saw a few of my friends go to jail. I saw them lose their driver's license for a year. Not for be, DUI? Yeah, yeah, for DUI. And now the laws are getting stricter and stricter yeah. and people are starting to go to jail. I mean, thank God I didn't kill anybody, you know, yeah. drinking and driving. And like when it gets that, when you see somebody who's lost somebody because of a drunk driver, you know, the whole um, mad moms against drunk driving yeah. and dare and, and whatnot, when those, it's like, I couldn't. I didn't want to be part of that, but I couldn't stop. I didn't know how to stop. Yeah. So this is great. And I love this. this is good advice for anybody who wants to do anything. 
Um, so this is how you did it. How you quit drinking is you look to somebody else who did what you wanted to do and you reached out to your neighbor and you just flat out asked her like, how'd you quit drinking? <laughs> right. It was just like very blunt, right. Kind of out of the blue almost. Yeah. I mean, just like being an athlete, if somebody's hitting something or running a certain way, you say, how did you, you know, make that time? How yeah. are you doing that? What equipment are you using? What, are, how are you training? What practices are you doing? Who's your strength coach? Who's your speed coach? So I go to, I knew everybody on my street and because I'd push a stroller around all the time. And then I had one neighbor that did not drink. And she was this very stoic, older lady, very well put together. She looked like she walked off a cheek, uh, the cover of like a Chico's magazine, always with like kind of matching tops and bottoms. Is Chico some sort of women's style? I don't, okay. Yeah. It's <laughs> I'm like, just assuming. From it's, a women's, okay. it's a women's store. Um, she was single and I knew she had been divorced like three times. But she had this house, great car, great house, great car. And she was all well put together. (laughs) Okay. And so I just asked her, how do you, how'd you stop drinking? And she, she, she said like, oh, I drank enough for many years and I've ruined enough lives that, and I went through enough marriages and money and kids. And she just like said, I will come with me on Sunday. And I was like, okay. So, so show up at my house Sunday at five. So I show didn't up. tell you where you were going or what no. you're doing. Okay. She goes, I'll tell you all What'd you about think? it. What'd you think? You think, Oh, we're going to AA or would you? No, I did not think okay. I didn't know. I hadn't even really heard that term again. Oh, I just thought we were going to go to dinner, oh. you know, just to friends going out to dinner and have dinner. And she I was going to ask you her. then. Huh? She kind of tricked me because <laughs> I would be scared to go to an AA meeting. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd never I did not willingly know I was going. So I yeah. show up at her house. We drive towards Paradise Valley, which is this great part of town where the, you know, the, the great mountains in Arizona. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. And we're driving down the palm trees and I'm like, oh, there's some of my favorite restaurants down here. You know, we're going to go out and have a great time, watch the sunset. And then she pulls into this church. So she still hasn't told you at this point in the car. She's, you're thinking, you're still thinking it's some sort of maybe resort you're going to. Yes. Or, oh. She's like, oh, we're going to go, let's go meet some of my friends. Oh, so we pull into this church, like the opposite side of the road from the restaurant. And how did you feel about <laughs> church at this point? Were you a church goer or did you, were you anti-church or? I had tried church mm-hmm. to get sober and oh, it just have. didn't work. Okay. You know, I showed up every Sunday, I got dressed, I took my daughter to Sunday school and it just wasn't enough because I didn't have that connection mm-hmm. of knowing the others that were going through the same thing that mm-hmm. I was because I didn't speak Bible. Yeah. yeah. So we pull into this church. We go around the church to the back where the small meeting rooms are. And she parks and we get out and there's all these people and like a hundred people are congregating into this meeting space. And it was a nice place, you know, carpet, uh, air conditioning, lots of smiles and laughter. People were happy. They were hugging her. They were hugging me. I'm like, what's going on? They're handing me raffle tickets when you walk in. And Oh, we're so happy you're here. And I'm like, okay. So I look at the literature on the table and I'm like, oh my God, we're at one of these alcohol Wait, classes. Go back for a second though. Cause like <laughs> explain, I still don't understand the raffle ticket. How does it, is that like if you, it's your turn to go up and speak or something? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So this was what they call a speaker meeting. So somebody speaks for anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. Okay. And because there was over um, the amount of people there is, and it's mm-hmm. an hour meeting, oh. you get a raffle ticket. If your name gets if they call your number, then you can speak if you want. Yeah. 
But some meetings are smaller where everybody gets to speak and where you break off into small groups. Yeah. But this was a raffle style. If they okay. call your number, you get to speak. Hmm. There was no baskets going home or gift cards or anything like gotcha. there was, it wasn't a silent auction. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you thought at first. Like I had no idea. I mean, I wouldn't know either. Yeah. I didn't. That's interesting. Yeah. I was wondering that was, I heard you talk about another interview. I was like raffle tickets. I'm like, wait, what? I don't know. No, it just came to me like the speaker. Okay. So that might, does make sense. So you did that. And, uh, it's probably an awkward experience the first time, but with, you just kept going, right? It was so awkward. And I was like, how are they so happy and sober? Oh, what do you mean? This whole room full of people, they're not drinking. Why are they laughing? And I couldn't make the connection of being sober and happy because to me, alcohol, not drinking meant my life was over and the fun had ended. Huh. So seeing these people have what I want of emotional sobriety and yeah. Being happy, it was just amazing. It was oh. a different kind of happiness. Yeah. So that inspired you to keep going and... Yeah. So on the way home, so I sat there and there was a speaker, the speaker of the night. And he was just so captivating. He was also an athlete. Oh, yeah. And I, think I, I know lis- this is. I listened to his story and he's out. He speaks all the time. It was his anniversary and that's why... He He's was a famous there. athlete. Yes. Mm. And so I listened to him, totally captivated by his voice, his appearance, his just overall presence. Yeah. And I'm like, he, if he can do it, I can do it. There you go. And just like that, when after it was over, I ordered his book and I quick read his book and I'm like, wait, what? He was just honest with everything. He put it all out there. And I was just blown away by the fact that he was able to share his story mm-hmm. and he was not ashamed of it. Right. And then mm-hmm. that he had turned his pain into his purpose. And, you know, I was always thinking that you have to look like this on the outside and you can't tell anybody about these feelings that you're mm-hmm. having because, you know, nobody wants to hear that. Huh. So on the way home, um, she said to me, I said, okay, what's next? And she said, okay, you need to get a sponsor and you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was like, well, I don't know if I have time for that. Mm -hmm. You know, my daughter, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, listen, your life depends on it. If, If you are at your bottom and you're telling me what you're telling me is true, you're drinking and driving and you're, you know, just carrying on. She goes, your life depends on it. And also my husband had said, you know, we may need to get a divorce if you can't stop drinking because you're putting our children at danger. Wow. So that was my bottom. Mm -hmm. And so I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. It was the hardest thing I did. The next day I went to this meeting close to my house in an undesirable shopping complex. And I walk in, well, I pull up in my car and I can't get out of the car. I'm frozen. And oh, I, you're by yourself this time. I'm you're by myself. The, your neighbor. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, get on your smartphone of yours and look up a meeting and you go every day and then you call me after you're finished. Mm. And I said, okay. So I go to this shopping center with this meeting place. And I had seen this, been through the shopping center before, didn't really know what it was, but there was always people outside smoking, mm. undesirable, 
baggy pants, t-shirts, unkept, smelly. They just look like they smelled, even though I hadn't really walked by them yet. <laughs> okay. So I get it. I pull up in my car and I am paralyzed. I can't get out. I call her and she says, get out of the car. Just get out. You're already there. You already have your daughter taken care of. Like your time is now get out. Yeah. So I get out of the car and I walk through this group of men smoking cigarettes and they're smiling and they're saying, welcome. And I get to the door and somebody greets me and I'm like, okay, what's going on? And you walk in and there's like box fans and popcorn ceiling, low ceilings, and then the linoleum's peeling up totally different setting than the one I was at the day before. Mm -hmm. But these faces are so familiar to me. I don't know any of these people, but it's faces of those people that I grew up with. Mm. And I'm like, wow, these are my people. And I sit down and I start to listen to them share. And this was more a more sharing meeting. So sharing started and I started hearing my story from this person and this person and this person. And I called my sponsor afterwards and I was like, that was the scariest thing I ever did. And I sat there in silence, frozen the whole time. Mm -hmm. Like just so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable out of my skin. But you stuck with it. You stayed there. I stuck with it. And and I ended up going to that place regularly and just like knowing everybody that's standing at the door, walking through the smoke pile. (laughs) And I would go stepping out of your comfort zone. That's a big piece of it. I would go to any meeting anywhere. And when I started, when I continued to travel, I would just love to go to meetings on the road and see people. But so 90 meetings, 90 days, it took me about 30 days before I could speak. Oh, okay. And I cried almost every meeting. I'd hear something. I'd start crying. I'd start crying. I couldn't really function in regular life. Like I had to dial back everything socially. I, I wasn't prepared to see any of my friends. I wasn't prepared for them to say, let's go to dinner. And have them order a drink or order me a drink or, you know, kick. Uh, so I was so paralyzed. Did you um, ever, were you ever tempted to drink again after this? Yeah. So after I went a year and I got my year chip. So they give you these chips as milestones. Okay. So I went a year and I had a great lunch out with a few of my sober girlfriends and my sponsor. And then life got great and I started, went back to work personal training, hanging out in the gym, you know, just doing everything. And I was happy. I was feeling good, not bloated, you know, waking up every day, showing up and just had this great group of friends. And then I'm like, well, I think I've healed myself. It's been a long time. March starting to roll around again. I'm starting to get like that itchiness of like Bear Jackson, the golf tournament, Spring training, spring training, you know, that big, Oh yeah. From January all the way through April Mm -hmm. of events going on in town. And that was just such a big part of my life that I started to get antsy and they they call it the Ritz, restless, irritable, and discontent. Like I started just getting Mm. like antsy and I'm like, Oh, maybe I could drink again. Maybe it would be okay if I had one, you know, look how long I went. I've, I've, I've gone to all these meetings. I've been committed for a whole year. I read the book. So I thought about this for a couple of weeks before I took a drink again. And then that day, it was okay. I had two drinks. Then the next day, it was okay. I had three drinks. Then the next day, 
four drinks. And then, then, then I couldn't put a cork in the bottle. Then I was finishing off a bottle again. And they say you end up exactly as desperate as you were from the time you stopped. It took me less than a week to wow. fall down on my knees again and surrender. Hmm. So then you just, did you do it all over again? Then you started, so I started all over again, okay. 90 meetings in 90 days, start so, all over. Wow. So what advice would you have for people who are worried about their drinking or drugs and want to quit? Or it's kind of a two part question, I guess, mm-hmm. um, for people who are worried about their own, or what if you're worried about somebody else's drinking or drugs? Like what would you, what advice would you give them? Yeah. So it's kind of like, just, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Mm-hmm. Like, because you're only caught up in between the prison and between your ears. So you're the only one holding yourself back from anything. Like, you know, life is great. Go out there and get it. Mm-hmm. So if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, it's maybe something you want to look into. There is help out there. You yeah. know, find the support. Take yourself through that little quick quiz. You That's know, right. You have that in your book. I have that in the book. And my I book, took the quiz. My book is filled with resources for mental illness oh. um, and yeah. Drug abuse. Yeah. Cause there's, there, so there's alcoholics anonymous, there's narcotics anonymous, uh, there's gamblers anonymous, sex addicts. Uh, do you think people can be addicted to anything? I mean, and is sometimes maybe that a positive thing? Like what if you're addicted to working out or your business or helping people? I mean, where do you draw the line? Like, and also like, I think like sometimes a kid who lays around and plays video games all day, is he really addicted to video games or is he just lazy or is he depressed? Like, I don't know. What was your thought on all this addiction? Cause that word gets thrown out so much now. <laughs> yeah. My thought is that it, it's often that athletes have that addictive personality because they train harder than the next person. And they, mm-hmm. they push themselves to a pain level to where they're able to grow their, you know, muscles and body. Mm. And they have to always operate on that threshold Yeah, of, you know, if one is, Good too is better. Mm-hmm. So they have that. It's the disease of more. So the disease of more can produce a high quality life. If it's, huh. if you're an athlete, right, you can be a yeah. great performer mm-hmm. or you can be a great producer at work. You know, somebody who's always working, 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 but it's, there's always an imbalance. So I was really surprised that when I started going to meetings and then I'd go to my health club. And I would see the same people. Interesting. And I started seeing the same people and going, oh my gosh, this is more common than you think. And mm-hmm. like, so that athletic behavior is the same behavior. It's almost like a, there's a gene. Which, and it, and if, you, right. if you, if people who have that gene, if they drink, they're going to, when they do something, they do it like to a hundred percent. So That's if they right. take drinking, they're going to, it's like you said, like you, you, you guys treated drinking like it was a sport and you got better at it and you, you know, you can't conquered it. And so I feel like if they use that gene to focus on something else, they can, people can do amazing things. They can do amazing things and you can turn your life around if you want to. And, yeah. and you know, it's not, this program is not a, for people that need it. It's mm-hmm. for people that want it. There's yeah. plenty of people that need it. And, but it doesn't always work when your family sends you there. Right. You know, you have to want it for yourself and you have to want a better life. And you have to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the, now we've kind of told your story. Uh, Let's talk about maybe some of the concepts that you have in this book. Um, So you you kind of touched on this one already a little bit, but social anxiety. You said that when you first quit drinking, it was hard to socialize with people. Um, I know for some people, big groups of people and uh, large parties can be overwhelming. Uh, 
for me personally. Uh, I think that's one thing that might be a positive about the lockdown for like introverts. I didn't realize I was like, I actually found myself really enjoying being at home. I know I I shouldn't say I was like, oh, this is actually really, I don't have to go to this party with all these people I don't like. Oh, I don't have to go to this crowded, loud bar with all these like, you know, like annoying people and I can't hear anything. I'm like, I could just sit at home and like relax. I was like, this is kind of nice. But eventually we do have to socialize with other people. So how do you do that without alcohol? Because I think that's a crutch for a lot of people. Like there'll be many, many times where I'm, I'm just, for whatever reason, I decide, you know what, I'm not drinking tonight or I'm, you know, I'm going some time without drinking and people look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, what? You, you don't want to have a, you're not going to have a drink. It, what you're, you're really, you're, but where, well, I don't, they, 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 they just think it's like the most insane thing ever. Like how do you, so how do you do it as somebody who's been sober for as long as you have that you go to, you must go to parties and events, right? Yeah. I'm back. I can go anywhere. I, you know, there's no situation that I shy away from because if it's a dark situation, then I feel like my light will shine. Um, but I have a couple tricks and tips that I use. Like Ooh. when I go out socially, you know, if you walk in and somebody offers you a drink, you're like, Oh, let me go say hi to the hostess. Oh, yeah. Or you're that. like, Oh, let me, um, Oh, I have to go use the restroom or, oh, I see somebody I need to say hi to. So you avoid that initial, like, let me get you a drink by distracting. Right. Because of course that's what they're doing as a hostess. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's, there were somebody handing out drinks, you know, and, and people who drink are more comfortable when people around them are drinking. So that's why, like when you tell people you're not drinking, they get uncomfortable. They're like, what, what do you mean you're not drinking? What <laughs> yeah, do you mean you're it's not like, drinking? Well, I'm like, I don't care if you drink. I mean, yeah. go ahead, go nuts, go, go do whatever you want. But I just don't feel like it. Yeah. And it took me a while before I was able to like, I didn't want the pushback. Mm-hmm. So I would more avoid it in okay. like my first year. Hmm. I would just be like, oh, I'm good. You know, make, I didn't, I didn't have a hard line of, I don't drink. Like I did now, like the book yeah, came out and okay. now it's kind of like a way of outing myself. And like, no huh. matter what, I just don't drink. So it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want. And I'm happy for people that can drink. Do people ever make you feel like, uh, <laughs> like less than for not, oh, she doesn't drink or, and like, do they, like, it's a, like a demeaning thing. Like, oh, she's an alcoholic or like, don't get her, don't get her a drink. Like, you know what I'm saying? Um, well, there was like early on, there was this issue like, oh, well, we didn't want to invite you to that concert because you know, you have that thing. That thing. Like that thing. Uh, that thing <laughs> called a nice way to commitment call it. Yeah. to sobriety. So it would make them okay. uncomfortable if uh, I wasn't, oh, okay. if not everybody yeah. around them was on the same state that they were. But you know what? God has a funny way of doing things for you that you can't do for yourself. So people that fell away in my life just fell away. Mm, okay. You know, but. Why do you think alcohol is so prevalent in our society, like among adults? And well, and for many teenagers, yeah. Cause like I said, I, I just get so many like shocked reactions if I just don't feel like drinking that night or for whatever reason, you know, it's personal choice. I just, yeah, I don't feel like I don't want to have like, why is that? Like just, it's always like the default is you're going to have a few drinks wherever we go. If it's a concert, it's a ball game, it's a party. It's, you know, I really think that the culture is changing. Even like Bud Light came out with a non-alcoholic thing just this couple oh, of weeks they? ago. Yeah. I saw him. But I think it's really shifting because the knowledge and there's more information out there. Mm-hmm. You know how long it took for me to get that information. You know, if some younger girls read this book or some athletes, mm-hmm. you know, they might be able to get themselves out of it earlier hmm. and not have to go through all the pain or find, right. or find their bottom. Like, oh, it's okay not to drink. Like, I didn't know any different because I started at such such a young age, and that's mm-hmm. just what you did, and that's right. just. 
the culture was that. And like you're saying, and even in the mom culture and. Yeah. See, I that's mean, what I'm saying. I feel like it's actually like going the, the pendulum is swung the other way. Cause I feel like in the seventies, my dad told me, you know, I don't know if you watch the show Mad Men, but my dad, he loves that show. Like my parents like that show because they said in the sixties and seventies, that's how it was. Like you'd go to the office and you'd have a drink and that was just normal. And then at some point, I mean, that changed where it was like, Oh, you can't drink at the office. I mean, I don't know, maybe depending <laughs> on the job, but maybe if you're a rock star or something, but you know, most like businesses accounting, I mean, I think, you know, I don't know. I feel like even maybe in the schools, I feel like in the fifties and sixties people, the teachers and stuff would drink. I mean, that would just be unheard of in today's society. But now it's like going back where people are dry. And I see all, all the time on like Facebook and stuff, people post pictures like oh, I'm having my beer at work or whatever. Like a lot of these companies are starting to stock fridges of boot, kind of a way to like lure people into, you know, this is look at our, our, you know, company is fun. We have alcohol and stuff. Yeah. And like, uh, well, two movies, like the bad news bears, the coach was like a retired, um, baseball yeah. player and he was a drunk and they were yeah, like, you got to right. coach this team as your community service, oh, you know, and he, right. and he was like drinking on the field yeah. and like, like now, you know, that will get you fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's like kind of changed, but yeah, so that's interesting. So, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, it kind of goes pendulum, maybe just keeps swinging back and forth. I don't know. But, um, how do you feel about, um, this is kind of a concept in the, in the book, uh, risk, because I feel like you, you took a lot of risks in your life starting out being young and started trying alcohol and then buying alcohol underage, you know, with the bloods and the crips around, uh, drinking and driving is a big risk. Um, you're, you're doing those things. Uh, uh, you were doing those things to take risks, I think, and the drugs, all that stuff. But, um, I feel like you're taking big risks now by talking about this stuff, by telling personal things, writing a book about it, coming on interviews, coming to some stranger's house. I mean, so like, what is your thought on risk taking now? I mean, do you think that people can take positive risks is, risk is a big part of like succeeding in life? I think, what do you think? Yeah. I think that pressure, you know, pressure makes diamonds and you mm -hmm. know, it's when you're uncomfortable is when you grow. Mm -hmm. So when the times are dark and you know, that's when things are starting to grow and move and yeah, it is a big risk. Um, not everybody in my camp was so on board about saying everything in my book. Mm. And it's a risk that I had to take. Like I wanted to out myself and I didn't know how my mom was going to react. And she's still true to her form. When the book came out, she didn't talk to me for a week when she first got it. <laughs> and then we just picked up like nothing. And she never mentioned the book. Interesting. And I heard when I started talking to people about writing books, they would say that like my parents still haven't talked to me. It's been 20 years because they feel like I shame the family or they feel like that. I, so I was taking that risk, really? but I knew it was something that I had to do for myself hmm. and tell my side of the story. It's my, it's my perspective, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and my brother's like, well, you left a lot out. I didn't know a lot of that happened. Whatever. And he's like, well, what are you going to write about? He goes, my friends want to know what, what, what you're going to write about. I go, well, it really doesn't matter because they don't know how to read anyways. <laughs> so it's like, Ouch. They're never going to read it. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. So I don't really, I wrote the book and my publisher said, write it like nobody's going to read it. Don't hack yourself. Okay. So mm -hmm. I wrote it like nobody was going to read it. 
<laughs> and you wrote it, it was then, kind of, it was written for a younger version of yourself, right? Is that what you said? Like you wrote this, like you would, you'd want to give this to like a 15 or 14 year old crystal, right? Yeah. Like I was coaching three different levels of softball teams at the time, my eight, nine year old daughter's team and a junior high team and a girls getting ready for high school. And during the writing process, and I would see these girls on the field and I would see what they were going through. And I was just having all this, it really helped me write because it was just all these lessons that I'd want to share with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, another thing you talk about in the book, happiness is a choice. Um, So I think it was your, your daughter's dance teacher. She always seemed happy. And she said it was because she chose to be. Um, But I mean, isn't that kind of easier said than done? Like, how do you ignore all the negative thoughts and feelings that creep up? I mean, even if you're like, oh, I'm going to be happy. And then, you know, you turn on the news or something, let's say, for example, and it's not so happy out there. So how do you stick with that choice? Because I'd love to choose to be happy if it was that easy. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss, right? (laughs) (laughs) If I don't turn the TV on, I can stay happy. And I mean, even during this time, this pandemic, it's really like people's characters are coming out, right? You really Mm -hmm. see who somebody is like, are you, and I'm choosing during this time to live in faith, not fear. And it's God's time, not my time. And, you know, if you can't see your family and you can't see your friends and what's the point of living. So, and God's going to do what he's going to do. You know, we got to be socially responsible, but it's not worth my mental health to not see people and connect So early on in the meetings, when the pandemic or the COVID came out, Mm -hmm. you know, they kind of take like a group conscience meeting and the overall consensus was like, we have a deadly disease. And if we don't have each other, we're no good to our families anyway. So staying Hmm. home because of COVID will kill us. Yeah. Because a lot of those people will start drinking. That's right. I think a lot of people are drinking more because of it. Even that if they didn't have a problem, they might have one now. Right. Yeah. And that has happened a lot with. That's why I decided when this thing happened, I was like, I'm done. I quit drinking. I I stopped drinking since some from day one. I was like, I'm going to try to be as healthy as I can. So if I quit drinking, I try to eat healthy. Uh, I could do better on that. But, you know, it's like, yeah, I feel like that's an interesting perspective, though, for, yeah, for people who are full on because we have mental, we have a mental illness. And if, and what the recipe for my mental illness is sleep, connection, pray, you know, I have to connect. I, I need my sober friends around me. I need somebody that's walking in the room on the the verge of tears to remind me where I was and how I never want to go back there. And then I need somebody in front of me who's has the joy, happy, joyous and free life that I want and seeing how, how did you stay married and do that when people around you aren't sober? Like, how do you choose sobriety? Do, do people have the choice though with those meetings? Like, could they do it online or Zoom or something? There, so they did. Because like, if you have an asthma, did, if you're elderly, I would say probably. Yeah. So it did yeah. switch over to Zoom. Okay. And then it, there's still people are still meeting underground, if you will. Oh, really? You know, if they needed. Like a, it's like a, what do you call those things? The uh, <laughs> the bars that were um, outlawed in the. Um, speakeasy. Speakeasy. Thank you. I mean, Took all COVID tongue. did was push things underground. It's not that they stopped. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, people still needed Connection. hot yoga, saunas, yeah. you know, it just pushed everything underground. Another thing, um, this is a totally uh, 180 here that we're talking about now, but um, another just it was in my notes because another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, suicide because obviously mm-hmm. you, you, your friend Scarlett 
suicide. Um, but you were you yourself suicidal as well after your friend's death and your miscarriage, you, you even tried a couple bottles of pills a couple yeah. times and, and, uh, but you, thankfully you woke up the next day. So going through that, like at that time, your, your lens was probably kind of hazy because of the drugs and stuff and the youth maybe too. But, um, how do you look at those kinds of tragedies now with like a different vision? In other words, like what advice would you give for somebody that, um, you know, maybe feeling suicidal? Yeah. So I had a couple of times it was the losing of my friend Scarlett and then also losing my baby to stillborn that I didn't think I could go on. And I was just like, what's the point? Yeah. So I, I tried, took pills, failed, woke up, was totally disappointed. And then at the same time I was like, okay, well, what's my purpose now? guess I got to just keep on going. But I would just tell people like, if you have a spiritual connection See, I didn't really have a spiritual connection, so therefore I was just feeling lost and depressed, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get out of the cloud. But if you have a spiritual connection, then you know you're never alone, and you're a child of God walking with them. And then also to be surrounded with people who have walked through what you're going through, and they made it out to the other side. Because you always feel, well, I always felt so alone. Okay. That it couldn't really, you know, share what was going on. and And the suicide thing, even with the alcohol thing, like my idea of people that committed suicide was not scholarship athletes. It wasn't people that had mm-hmm. two parents and a family. Yeah. So it just shook the whole vision of what mental illness was. Yeah. And it was during, um, after her suicide, I went to some support groups and it still didn't match up. Hmm. You know, she didn't fit all the things that, have the characteristic traits. I mean, we had the the rage where we raged together and we had that, but she still didn't fit a lot of the, and so, you know, there was just an acceptance of you, you don't know what mental illness looks like. Yeah. You know, it can be your neighbor. It can be your mom. It can be your dad. It can be the person down the street. Oh yeah. There's so many celebrities, like people that I looked up to. Um, well, you know, I mean, I had the, Halinsky's on here. I mean, that whole story with Halinsky's yeah. hope and their son was a, you know, was a D one college athlete. Yeah. He was going to be the starting quarterback at yeah. Washington state the next year. And, you know, he killed himself. It's just, it's like, that really shook my world. When I first saw that somebody had posted about that, I thought, Oh, this is fake news. This is some sort of like rumor or lie that, and then it came out. It was true. I still, and to this day, I'm still shocked on that one, but there's so many amazing people that, I mean, so many people that I looked up to as a kid, like musicians and comedians, like Chris Farley. I was, and it was the same kind of thing where like, you don't, you're like, no, why would he, he's one of the funniest people in the world. He's got it all. Why would he, you know, I mean, he didn't kill himself, but basically he fell into that same kind of, you know, a lot of it's, did he kill himself? Was it on purpose? But it's like, you know, you're using drugs that are basically going to kill you. It's kind of like a similar path, I think. Um, and this is a cool thing that you talk about in the book too. I, I don't know if you made up this little saying, but, um, it's kind of cute. You say you can either take victim Avenue or Victor Boulevard. I kind of like that. So, cause I see that as one of the biggest problems in society today. I feel like people have this victim mindset and then thinking that they can't do something or they need someone else's help. And though, although I do think there's a time and a place to ask for help like you did. Um, but knowing when and you know how and when to ask for that help yourself, like you're asking your friend, you wanted to do something like quit drinking or whether it's you ask someone else who has achieved some goal that you want to achieve. Like, how do you think this can be applied to all sorts of different things in life? Like, how do people rise up 
and take control of their own lives instead of being dependent on others. Cause even though you asked for help from your friend, I mean, eventually it was, you had to go out there and go to those meetings by yourself, right? Yeah. I think, I mean, within talking to somebody for like 10 minutes, you can tell whether they're a victim of their circumstance or they're a victor of their circumstance. Like almost everybody has childhood trauma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, all to all different extents, you know, but whatever. And I just hope I do my best not to pass it down to my daughter. But it's like, (laughs) it's so hard. I think you're doing fine. It's so hard, but everybody's got their stories mm-hmm. and it's like, does, is that going to define you or yeah. are you going to overcome it? Like, and, it? And I really looked at like every person that crossed my path or everything that I've went through made me the person who I am today. Mm-hmm. You know, so there was no regrets or lost time or I don't know. I mean, just, I live very carefree and carelessly and recklessly, but at the same time, I kept moving and I kept moving and I kept moving and just kept going on. So yeah, just, so just keep, keep trying and don't give up. Cause keep that's trying. That's yeah. Big, yeah. And it's like some people will be stuck on a divorce or they'll be stuck on their husband dying. I just, cause women, I'm around get women. Stuck. So okay. I hear those two yeah. things a lot. Right. And they just can't get past that. Like it's, well, this is a good quote you have from the book. I think this is actually from a movie, but it's in your book. Uh, worrying is like meditating on shit. Oh, yeah. That's a quote from the movie. Thank you for sharing. But you had that in your, I never, I don't know if I saw that movie or I don't remember that quote, but that's a great quote. Yeah. Worrying is like meditating on shit. It's just, <laughs> it's just a waste of time. Waste of time. So, um, and going back to that, you know, needing, again, needing help, but you know, helping people to help themselves. That's kind of my whole philosophy on life. Um, you say that uh, people should get a mentor. Everyone should have a mentor. Um, so talk about having a mentor, like, how do you get one? Is there a program that you recommend or how do you, how should people go about that? Yeah. So people do it in a couple of different ways. I mean, as an athlete, you often will have like your team captain mm-hmm. or somebody alumni to be, you know, your leader or somebody that you can ask questions to. It's kind of like a big sister, big brother program. Mm-hmm. Um, within the program, there's a way to get one is you just go and you listen and you hear things of people say that you're drawn to and you're like, Oh, I, I like what they said, or they went through a similar thing. And you just ask them, hmm. you know, you say, will you be my sponsor? And some people go about it differently. They call it, you know, their healing coach. My friend just got a healing coach. I go, hmm. what's that? And so she told me, I go, Oh, okay. So you got a spiritual advisor. That's what I call it, okay. which is actually a sponsor, but it's somebody like that won't judge you no matter what, that mm-hmm. you can tell anything to. And I never had anybody that I could totally be honest with that I could tell every little bad thing that I held shame and guilt about. And she looked at me and goes, okay, is that it? Are you sure we need to write everything down here on this paper? Because you can't heal yourself and you can't make amends unless you get it out. It's one of the steps in the process. And she she didn't even flinch to anything that I told her. And I was like, she's my people. There you go. Okay. So yeah, that's another thing where it's like kind of trial and error sometimes with finding the right mentor. Cause you could have somebody that's not a good fit for you. And so you mm-hmm. got to find somebody who's a good fit. Yeah. Find yeah. a good fit, find somebody who has what you want and ask them how they got it. And, um, speaking of good fits. So I know there's a lot of diet. I had a fitness expert on a couple of weeks ago and, um, I know there's a lot of diet and fitness tips and <laughs> things like that. Um, so you're actually a vegan and you say in your book, 
Um, you get all your groceries delivered and then you, you spend that time instead of spending the time that you would spend going to get groceries, you spend that time food prepping, like you cut up veggies and roast them and then you Mm -hmm. portion them into glass jars. So like, what's like an average lunch for you then? Okay. So not vegan, but plant-based. Isn't that the same thing? (laughs) What is the difference? You don't eat meat or or dairy or do you? Vegans might eat Doritos and they might eat tofu and they might eat stuff that is not. Isn't that stuff (laughs) plant-based? processed artificial it's, based right. but it still comes from plants it's not meat there's no meat in those or tofu? is there tofu beans oh. right oh, i don't know but anyway so you call it uh sorry you I, call it plant-based i call it plant-based and it's based around an anti-inflammatory diet and okay. that all disease starts with inflammation oh. and inflammation is what causes disease yeah so watch this movie called like fork over knife I think I've seen that. And I've seen was, so many of these, but it's so, they're so conflicting. I feel like one will say vegan is the way to go. And the other one will say, um, low carb. And the, you know what I mean? That's what's so confusing. But for you, vegan so or uh, plant-based works. Plant-based. So yeah. this one was, it was called fork over knife and it was by two cardiologists and they were doing heart surgery on people just to have them come back three or four years later and need another bypass. Mm. And they're like, okay, we need to change what, we're telling our patients and both of them grew up like in the Midwest on farms around cows and dairy and whatnot. And they switched over to plant-based and they saw a, a huge, you know, change in the people were able to heal themselves. And my stepdad, who was a great guy died of lifestyle choice diseases. And it was during that time where, you know, the, the 40 year old guy with the big hard belly was funny you know, or there's like, mm-hmm. oh, that belly. And then, you know, at 40, you started taking one pill for high blood pressure and that blood pressure put off a diabetes pill and that diabetes pill put off, you know, Coumadin. And the next thing you know, you're taking a buffet of like 12 pills. Ugh, well, I yeah. watched my stepdad go through that from the time he was 40 up to 64. And food can either be your greatest medicine or the slowest poison. So I s- slowly watched him by lifestyle choice disease even though it wasn't drugs, mm-hmm. but it was food mm. because his body never could ca- could catch up. And your body's made to heal itself if you yeah. give it the chance of. So, yeah, I so just. So plant-based work for you. And then here's why I came to plant-based because my daughter's is almost 10 years old. Her body's starting to change. And I'm like, how am I not going to pass an eating disorder onto my daughter? Right. How do you just say, don't eat that? Don't yeah. eat that. Don't eat that. And I had all this food noise because it was just shifted over from, I can't drink. Right. So what am I putting in my body? And I just became hyper aware of food. Then I started thinking about food all the time. Like, okay, well they say that you might gain weight when you stop drinking, you might crave sugar because you're taking sugar out. Okay. I can't eat that. All right. I got to be careful of this. So when I stopped counting everything and threw that away and just was like, eat all God made food, the noise went away. Hmm. It just went away. So yeah. So what do I prep? I mean, I, I make quinoa, asparagus. I love sweet potatoes, broccoli, you know, just all basic real food. And so not a lot of carbs lots, though. Lots of color. Well, I eat lots of fruit. Fruit. That's good. Yeah, but L- not a lot fruit. of like, do you like, uh, like pastas and breads? My, no. I like quinoa Quinoa. Okay. and rice. Rice. Quinoa that's rice. okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't love you pasta. Don't a lot of it or you just still like kind of maybe not no carb, but is it lower carb than, you know, I don't even count because mm. you know, there's protein, protein comes like 
in the kale and all the green veggies. Can you eat tortilla chips with guacamole? Because that's, yeah, okay. <laughs> a little bit. Okay. <laughs> you're laughing. Is that like your cheat meal or something? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's okay to eat a little bit of chips and a little bit of processed food. I just, would eat, I would just go out and be like, oh, this, this is a plant based. Like, that's how I, I cheat myself. I, I, I don't know. I yeah. Felt, I'll eat a avocado, just like slice it up and eat it right out of the rind with salt so and pepper good. on it and as a meal, though. Isn't it funny how, <laughs> uh, like back in the 80s and 90s, it was like this whole low fat, non fat thing? And that's like, we look back on that because a lot of that stuff was like that they'd pump these uh, foods full of sugar and stuff. And so that's like really fascinating to me to think like, you know, nuts and avocados, which are natural high fat food, but that's high fat. That's bad. That's, you know, but clearly now we know those are not bad foods. Diet food makes you fat. Yeah. And no calorie, zero calorie makes you fat because your body needs to burn. So when you're putting yeah. zero calories in there, then it stores it in the lumps and right. bumps. Yeah. Well, speaking of lumps and bumps, you had back surgery. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I know you got to probably get going soon here, but just wanted to, I did want to touch on this because that's like a part of your book too. And that's kind of the thing you had this back pain, um, but you obviously couldn't take pain pills or drink for the pain. So you had to have this back surgery. You said in the book that the back surgery was harder than giving birth. So tell me about that. And what advice do you have for people suffering from back pain, because based on the statistics on your website, there's a lot of people that have back pain. Yeah. 80% of Americans will have suffer from debilitating back pain at some point in their life. And is it like, does depression cause back pain or does back pain cause depression? So back pain goes hand in hand with a little mental illness. And isn't there a book about, um, heal your back pain or something that's, it's about, it's a mental thing with back pain. You know what I'm talking about? The book? I forget. Dr. Sarnos. Yeah. From Howard Stern. Yes. I was going to say that. I was, I didn't know if you were a Stern fan, but I was like, I remember him talking about that and I was like, what? I had to look this up. I, I, it's on my list of books to read. It's like probably like at the bottom because I don't have back pain, but I'm still fascinated by this idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had back pain and after becoming sober, and stop numbing. Then I realized how much pain I was in. And after it would be a weekend with um, my family, like going to a diamondbacks game or Disneyland weekend, or just walking around the mall. Then on Monday, Tuesday, I would be in bed again from inflammation in my back. And I'm like, okay, well, this is, you know, starting to take days out of my life. I need to address it. So I started going to yoga. I tried everything and I go to cold therapy. That would, I would walk into cold therapy bent over like, in so much pain and I would freeze myself in those cryo things. Mm. And then I would be able to walk out hmm. standing up, but slowly over the next six hours, the inflammation would come back, you know, cause mm. it would shrink all the inflammation and would give me temporary relief. So all this stuff that I tried was, it all works temporarily. Yeah. Okay. But structurally when you're damaged, you're damaged. And uh, we had bought a new house and I was moving like two weeks with the movers and then they had all left and I was still putting the boxes away and I was just determined to put every little box into its place. And I was lifting up my laundry basket in this new closet and up and over and pow, it was like shot to the back. I passed out of my closet floor and I woke up and didn't know how much time had passed. I had like dry tears on my face and I crawled. I, I couldn't get up. My legs wouldn't move. I army crawled across a cold tile floor to get to a phone in my master bedroom to call my husband and say, I can't move my legs. And he came home the next day and went to three consultations. And a couple, the, for the first two surgeons said, you know, you might never ever be able to run again. 
my left leg was dragging and was turned out. And so, and then the last doctor, he said, okay, I think I want to do the most surgery on you because you're healthy. He goes, I can't believe you, you know, your bones aren't holding you up. Your core is holding you up from all the yoga that you Mm -hmm. had been doing to counter your, your back pain. So he said, let me make some phone calls. I'll call you tomorrow. So he called and he goes, I talked to my colleagues and I've never done this much surgery, but I want to do it. If you're up for it, Mm -hmm. it's going to be really hard, but I want to fix all of you instead of just one piece of where the pain is, because this will eventually fail and you'll be back on my table in a year Mm. and then a year and then a year, which is what happens to a lot of people that have back pain. So... Three days later, I was in surgery. I did four hours in the back, and I have two eight-inch scars and rods in my back along my spine, and then sewed me up, turned me to the side, cut me on the side, and did the discectomy, which was a massive herniated disc, sewed me up. I was in the hospital for a week. had to learn to walk again, and it was the most pain ever, yeah. Oh, wow. This does not sound... And this was all just... Kind of a genetic thing, like it wasn't from softball injuries, or maybe softball made it worse. Or, no, no, it was yeah. definitely from training. Oh, it was yeah, yeah, it okay. was definitely from softball playing, and oh. so alcohol pulls on your calcium, which oh. and creates like an osteoporosis type thing. So oh. I was constantly depleted. Gotcha. So huh. you know when you're trying to build the muscle, but your bones are deteriorating at the same. You know you don't have strong yeah. bones okay. when you're an alcoholic. Gotcha. That's yeah. I've heard that. There's a connection there. For There's sure. a connection there. Yeah, um, <laughs> a little connection. Let's say you talk about that in the book. So let's talk a little bit just about the book, quitting to win. Um, we, I mean, we've talked mostly about that through the, uh, this episode. But um, do you have? I mean, it's doing pretty well. It's number thirty-two in the spinal cord injury books, uh, number 56 in softball, number ah. 650 in 12 step programs, which, cause I'm assuming there's a lot of those books. Um, but I mean, yes, yeah, ranked on all these things on Amazon. It's pretty cool. Do you have any advice for people who want to write their own book? I've heard that from my friend, he said, there's like this middle point in the book where you'll get like halfway through it. You'll fly through and then you'll get halfway through the book. And then all of a sudden you hit like a wall and then you just have to like take a break. Did you experience that at all or? No, no, it flew out of me. I I had a great team around me and they kept me going and, you know, got me over my, my own mental minefields and Mm -hmm. didn't let me hack myself. And, you know, whatever was stopping me, I was able to talk to somebody right away. Cause now I'm trained to like, if something runs through my head longer than 10 minutes, Mm. pick up the phone and call somebody. Okay. You know, and that's just part of my recipe of keep it moving because when I get in my head too much, forget it. It's over. No good for anybody. Yeah. So you have like a team that helps. What kind of team do people need if they want to write a book or? Oh, yeah. So I have a publisher and my publisher had a great team. You know, there's the writing team at first and there's the editing people. Then there's the the publishing and the marketing. So, you know, so as you go through these phases, you work through different with work through different teams. But I checked in with somebody every day. um, And from the time I went. So when I made it to my 40th birthday sober, which I never could picture myself over the age of 40, I just hmm. didn't have a vision. I just thought I was going to go out like Anna Nicole Smith. <laughs> I just really thought I would. <laughs> oh God, I'm so up. glad you didn't I do just, that route. It's, well, I didn't it's, think it's I was so going to wake up yeah. one day. Ugh. Yeah, it's bad. It, it is sad. And um, she had so much money too. Didn't she have like half a billion dollars or something like that? I don't know if she ever, did she ever get the money? I can't remember. It was bad. I think it went to the daughter. Oh, okay. The new guest model now. She's my oh, really? little one. She's so cute. Anyways, um, I couldn't picture myself at 40. I made it to my 40th birthday sober and 
celebrated with my family and had a really nice, you know, party. And I decided to write a book at that point. And then it took me about two years to start writing. I I interviewed a couple of publishers, you know, first I had to convince myself that, you know, get through all. I, I talked to people in my program about how and what to share. And I called up a handful of people I knew that wrote books and asked them, how'd you, how'd you do it? Mm. You know? Okay. So again, it's that, that thing of asking somebody else for help and advice on how to do something you want to do. Good advice. Yeah. So the time I signed with my publisher from, he said, I'll take you all the way from concept to conception in a year. And he did. Awesome. I started last last May, and this May I published. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, I hope it continues to do well. Uh, definitely, you can get it on Amazon. You can get the, I think you get the digital version too, right? Yeah, Kindle you can or, get the clickable. Or you can get Kindle, the, the Kindle, and I'm um, the audiobooks in production right now. It's cool that it's, you actually have like a, a physical version. I like the physical versions too. I know you sent me the PDF, so I read that one. But uh, typically when I buy a book, I like having the, the full uh, actual book. I don't know why. I mean, I, I do the PDFs too, but yeah. Yeah. It's kind of nice. Cool. So there's talks about translating into Spanish. There you go. So that's happening. And then my course coming out is going to be called eating to win. So that's the next thing that's coming out for me. And didn't you have a, a back pain course called back talk or something like back that? Back talk. Yeah. Yeah. So how does that, what is that about? So that's going to be the same thing. It's just going to be um, you know, helping coach people through pre and post surgery and mm-hmm. if they should get it okay, and just helping them through oh. that. Cause people call me all the time and say, you know, what, what happened? And I've partnered with my spine surgery, my spine surgeon, and he did a big campaign around me and my success of oh, the awesome. surgery, but mostly attributed to positive attitude and, you know, yeah, just keep going. Like, Awesome. Well, the book, the classes, um, is there a charity or a nonprofit that you want to promote? I always like to end with that. Um, yeah. Thank you. I don't have one that I'm all the way aligned with, but I do like to support recovery rock stars. Oh, okay. That sounds cool. That's, uh, is, I mean, I'm assuming that's, uh, drug and alcohol, Yeah. but is it, is it actual rock stars or is it just like, yep, the, it's oh. both Oh, recovery rock stars. And- I'll have to Google that one. That sounds fun. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah, I like there's a there's a book I just got about uh, autism and rock stars where it was like a recipe book that they it was to raise money for autism. So it's cool in rock stars because I'm into rock stars as you could probably tell from my <laughs> podcast episode. So very cool. Well, and then you also um, did you have like an idea we were going to do something fun for like the video since I mean besides pe- the awesome conversation that we're having. I do. Okay, Chuck. Okay, so right. this is just basic sports. Basic sports stuff. We'll see if you oh, know. Okay. Okay. I probably don't. <laughs> do you, I would see my idea. I didn't have time to do this. I was going to get a, one of those speed guns, you know, yeah. to measure. I want to see, I want to see, I bet you could, I bet you throw faster than me <laughs> A because you're a collegiate athlete. And even though you're a girl, I think you're, you're going to be, you'd probably throw faster. You weren't a pitcher. You're first base, right? First base. I yeah. still think you'd probably throw faster. I think it would have been funny. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> but let's do your idea. Cause I don't have a speed gun. So. Okay. So 60 seconds to like, um, oh boy, the question. So baseball, softball, yeah, seven different ways to get on first. Oh, the seven different ways to get on like other than, so we, are we going or what? Yeah, okay. go for it. I mean, so like just like hitting a single. So that's uh, a hit. Okay. A walk, a walk, a balk when they hit you. Right. Isn't that, is that what it's called? Getting hit by the pitch bean hit by pitch hit by pitch. Um, Wait a minute, there's four more. <laughs> uh, an error? An error? An error. An error. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that would be the same if the if the catcher misses it, that's still an error. 
There's three more. Oh, well, that's uh, is that something different? That's drop third strike. Oh, okay. And the catcher yeah, misses if it. Yeah, the catcher misses it. So that's yeah. five. So yeah. only two more. Two more. Two more. Um, uh, no, would a fly out? No, a fly out would be out. So no, I, I, I'm stumped. Let's see. You can't steal first, can you? No. Okay. <laughs> only on a drop third, like on a drop third yeah, strike. I guess that, okay. So that's the same thing. Um, yeah. Then I'm. I don't know the other two. Okay, so it's Fielder's Choice. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that would. Yeah. And then there's it could be catchers or defensive interference. What is that? So it's like if you're running and yeah. they're fielding the ball, they can't interfere. They have to get the ball around you. So okay. there's in the catcher interference if if the glove if the bat touches the glove. Okay. So Interfe- they, they can't reach that's up. That's not an error, though. That's an interference. That, 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 that's okay. an interference. Yeah. All right. Well, I learned something new. That's so great. seven different ways to get on first. Awesome. Very cool. Well, again, get the book. Uh, check out your classes. Check out your website. Follow you on social media. You're on Instagram, Facebook. I think you're on Facebook, right? Yeah. Facebook. And uh, are you on Twitter? Very little. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, Twitter's scary. It's like a minefield. <laughs> like, you just go on there and you're like, oh, this is cool. Like, you'll see some really funny and cool stuff. And then you'll just see some of the most negative like destructive mean things that you'll ever see in this world. It's kind of scary, but uh, yeah. Crystalwaltman.com. Yes. That's the website. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun. All right. Okay. So that was Crystal Waltman. The book is called quitting to win. It's on Amazon. She's on social media, Instagram, Facebook, follow her, keep up, share this interview with someone. If you think it can help them or buy them the book as a gift, it's a good idea. Uh, If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know by writing a review of the podcast. Uh, That really helps the algorithm so more people will see it and hopefully be inspired, educated, or entertained, which is uh, what I'm trying to do here. So otherwise, you can find me on all the social media if you're so inclined. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day or night. And just remember to shoot for the moon, baby.